of violence, which comes uh, about in an 80-year cycle, more or less. But pretty much according to that, and it has occurred in the history of America and other empires in the past. So as you look around you today, you do not see a millennium yet. Uh, we are in very deep trouble as a nation. Uh, we've had some false starts in looking at things and wondering, is this the time that it all begins to tumble? And so far, uh, we've had those false starts and it hasn't occurred, but things are getting tighter and tighter. Uh, both Russia and China have announced from their leaders that uh, they are preparing for war. Uh, in the active phase of preparing for war and purportedly against the United States. Uh, there are several things that are creating this kind of pressure. Uh, the tariffs that we have administered uh, are causing a great deal of financial stress in other countries and among our own businesses here because other countries have put tariffs on our goods. So we have that, and now the financial markets around the world are going into bear territory and are falling pretty rapidly, as has uh, the U.S. stock market. So the whole financial world is entering another crisis, and it appears this time it's going to completely fly apart. And on top of that, uh, they're dumping the dollar, most, most of the major countries of the world, are starting to trade in their own currencies and bypass the dollar, which means that we can't live on credit anymore. They won't buy our U.S. Treasury debt, the U.S. dollar. They don't want it anymore. And what happens when you go down to buy things and nobody wants your dollar? Uh, there are already places that refuse cash in this country. Not too many yet, but some. They want it on electronics. But there will be a time when they simply will not accept the American dollar anymore. And then we are in, well, default. We're headed for trouble. And not only that, among other things, we have an invasion coming from the south. Uh, it appears that this could become a big thing. Uh, there are reports of ten to 14,000 people now, and there are already people gathering at the border waiting for the big entry. They're sitting right outside the gates uh, waiting. So Trump sending troops, uh, that's a long, long border along there, and 5,000 troops are pretty thin unless you gather them all together at the point of attack, but it it's, looks like lose-lose either way. Because if you get five or ten or twenty or fifty thousand people trying to cross the border and they put women and children in front and we try to stop them with whatever means, uh, those pictures will be sent around the world and America will be characterized as a big bully again, which we are. And if we don't do that and allow them to come in, then it will be an endless string of people who are coming in. You can't stop it once you allow it to happen in the first place. And I read an article this morning that indicates that there are, are quite a few different terrible diseases involved with those people who are coming in. And not only that, if you let them in and then you 
and then you yourselves, your own treasonous government, unleash some diseases among the population and blame it on the people from the south, uh, the net result is you have to have martial law and the UN coming in to keep the peace and all these things we've discussed could escalate very, very rapidly. So, uh, we're sitting here today on a festival day, which represents some wonderful things in the future, while the world around us looks pretty grim. And the destruction in the church isn't over yet either. Uh, it's been pretty well decimated, but Zechariah 11 hasn't happened yet, where he says he'll cut off three shepherds in one month, and uh, things will get even worse. And then in <clears throat> chapter 12, he talks about how the church will go into the tribulation, but he'll save about a third part of those who have been converted out of it. So, uh, it's going to get grimmer even for the church. So, what about us? <laughs> Where does, where does this go? What does all this portend? Uh, we've been over some of this a multitude of times, really. But I want to go back to Isaiah a bit today. And he sort of encapsulates it a little bit. With, so I'll give a quick summary. Here in Isaiah 1, he talks about uh, his people who have forgotten him, will not follow him, and... He says, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot to the head, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. And that unless God intervenes, there will be a very small remnant, and otherwise we'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah down in verse 9. Uh, so things are pretty grim. He tells us then in chapter in verses 17, that we should obey him, and if we would be willing and obedient, we would have good. But how the faithful city has become a harlot and full of judgment, the righteous, righteousness lodged in it is gone. Now murderers and the silvers become dross, your wine mixed with water, and your leaders are rebellious and companions of thieves, and they all love gifts and follow rewards, and nobody takes care of the fatherless and the widow. Uh, the big cats bit, get bigger and fatter, and the little people suffer. Is that what's happening? So God says he will destroy us. Uh, but in verse 27, he says, Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. So we know from uh, Haggai that God intends at this end time to stir people to come and to build his temple, to build Jerusalem, and to be an example to the world. And he says her converts will have righteousness. The last verse of Isaiah 54 I've quoted many times, which shows the gathering and the lengthening of the cords and the increase of the tent, make more room for people. And it says their righteousness will be of me. So it is godly righteousness then that comes. And that is only by the Spirit of God, not by anything we do, because God will have to pour out His Spirit, as He did in Acts 2. But He says He's going to do it. It says in chapter 2, verse 2, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. 
So he is going to uh, bring forth the law from Jerusalem into verse 3. And ultimately, people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, projecting forward to the time that the millennium speaks of, or that, that time of peace, when they'll make war no more, but they'll beat their war material and instruments into uh, farming tools. So that's what's ahead. He shows in chapter 2, verse 17, The loftiness of man shall be bowed down and made low. The eternal alone shall be exalted in that day. So the beast and the false prophet are coming soon, and they will exalt themselves, but God will put them down, and we're coming to a time when only he will be exalted. And the people will go into the holes of the rocks, and as Revelation says, pray that they can die, but they won't be able to cause that to happen. Anyway, uh, we go on down to chapter 4, uh, after the end of 3, showing your mighty men shall fall by the sword, your mighty in the war, and her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground, speaking of A, the church, and B, our nation, uh, afterward. Now, chapter 4, And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. In that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And he that is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, or righteous, as we just read before. Those who are written among the living in Jerusalem, because God is going to purge it. Verse 5, he'll create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion a cloud and smoke by day and a shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. Now this shows that this is at a time prior to the millennium, because he has to have a wall of fire and a cloud and smoke around Zion to protect it from those who would still destroy it. So, this is speaking prior to the millennium when there needs to be a defense. In the millennium, you won't need that, because all the armies and over 90%, well over 90% of the population of the earth will be destroyed, and there won't be anybody left to come against Jerusalem at that time, and the devil will be bound, so there will be nobody coming against Jerusalem for a thousand years. So the time that protection is needed is when God's people are being protected in their refuge in Zion. He calls it a place of refuge, end of verse 6. Uh, he talks about how the church, his, his vineyard is torn apart, and it also has to do with the vineyard of Israel, physical Israel, that is also torn apart, always dual in all these prophecies. Now, I'm going to come back to chapter 4 in a little bit, <clears throat> because there's something very important there. Uh, chapter 6, there's a message that needs to be done. And here you have the seraphims and the portable throne of Christ, as Ezekiel also mentions, uh, 
described here in chapter 6. And there's a message that needed to go, and, and he says, well, who will go? Who will take the message? So Isaiah says, okay, here I am, send me. So this is not a good message. Nobody wanted to bring it, but Isaiah, Isaiah said, okay, I'll do it. And it said, go and tell this people, verse 9, <clears throat> that they are to hear but not understand, and see but not perceive, and that the people will be blinded. And then Isaiah had a question in verse 11, same one Habakkuk had had, how long? So God doesn't give a date here, but he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten, used, as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them. So he says, destruction is coming, and only ten percent will return. Now that's of the church first, and of the nation next. Applies both ways. Now, I'm leading up to something here, a few chapters yet away, that we have traditionally read during the Feast of Tabernacles, Isaiah 11, showing the millennial conditions and so on. But I'm going to show you here, and what I'm doing is going through the context leading up to chapter 11, because there's something there we need to understand that needs to be in the context of what's around it. In chapter 7, then, there is a conspiracy here against uh, the government, uh, David's government, and uh, it is partly Syrians or Ishmaelites, I don't know what Syrians stand for here, maybe the whole Arab world, uh, but Syria is the one involved with Ephraim, uh, against Judah. Now let's understand that in the light of the church. We have our nation of Ephraim around us here, and we have the Ishmaelites, sons of Abraham through Hagar, uh, in a conspiracy against spiritual Israel, or against Judah, the ones that God has called. Now, they want to, and it has been announced in various ways, basically destroy the male uh, white individual and Christianity. And we have Muslims who are uh, infiltrating our country very rapidly and have been for quite some time, been upon destroying it, and that is increasing. And I think that you will find that Many will come in in this caravan that is headed this way now to join the ones already here. There are already Russian and Chinese soldiers scattered around our nation. So this has been, been, been being done through treason of our leaders. Jeremiah 50, 51 tells us very clearly that our leaders will shake hands with our enemies and make a compact against us. Clinton, Obama did that. Trump may be, for all I know. Uh, he certainly isn't stopping the treason that has been going on, uh, maybe a little bit, but not much. 
But anyway, it shows here that in verse 8, that this isn't going to stand, and that within three, five, within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, that it be not a people. And God says, you must believe this, or you will not be established, or you are not stable at the end of verse 9. So God says, I'll give you a sign uh, that this is going to happen, and happen according to what he just said. So he said to King Ahaz, uh, ask a sign. And Ahaz refused to do so. So God says, okay, I'll give you a sign. Verse 14, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Our God with us is what Emmanuel means. Butter and honey will he eat, and before he's old enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land that you abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings. Does that mean they'll leave the country or that they will be killed? Uh, they won't be there anymore. Gone. Now, I was watching last spring because I thought that this whole thing could be possibly coming down and the gathering might begin. Uh, but I think I was overlooking something here a little bit. Uh, it says that a virgin will conceive, and this thing will happen before he's old enough to know good from evil. Now, the church is the one that is supposed to conceive and bring forth Christ. We know that from many scriptures we've looked at. And how she will appear, uh, a remnant coming together. Now, what did we see last spring? It wasn't as dramatic as I once thought it could be. But how much does a baby just born do? Very, very little. He's there, <laughs> and the presence is there, but not a great deal gets done by a baby. Just as Christ, after he was born, didn't do much laying in a manger. But when he was a mature individual, he did a lot. So it progressed through his time here on the earth. As I look back, we had some things happen last Passover that to me at the time were pretty impressive. We had several baptisms and others coming back, a total of six or seven, and in our congregation of being very small at that time, that was an incredible increase, incredible percentage-wise. We also had... I can name at least four health interventions, a couple, three of them pretty dramatic health interventions that people would have probably been dead of had they not occurred. So, not total healings, but certainly interventions that I cannot deny. So, that is as, as if Christ began to do something in a small way, maybe like if you use the same analogy a baby would, but it will grow. <clears throat> and I am anticipating that by next Passover, some of the things we read in Joel and so on may happen in a far more dramatic uh, fashion than they have. Because I think we're ne nearing the end of that 35 years. I tried to understand in the light of the 70 years of captivity and the 430 years of America's existence since Roanoke, and when that ended, he says, it is very near that the end of this will come. Uh, 
they did not go to build the temple until the second year of Darius after the 70 years ended. So there's a period of time in there when not much is done, but there is a start toward, which may have been last Passover. So, we are watching. Uh, if 1954 was the time when that 65 years began, uh, the only thing that I could find, and I've, I've said this before, on either side of 1954, there was nothing for several years that indicated it could be the start of a conspiracy. But in 1954, you had the first meeting of the Bilderbergers, who are in a conspiracy or a deal or whatever you want to call it to destroy America. And that started May 29th through 31st of 1954, which would mean that if that is the start date, America will have to have been destroyed before May 29th through 31st of 2019. And that would be the second year since the... Uh, 70 years that I date from 1947 have ended. 2017 in the fall, just like the 430 years from Roanoke until now, ended in July of 2017. And Ezekiel says, it is near, it has come, it has come, it won't echo anymore. It's very near. And uh, I think that we are very, very near. And the way things are looking in the world today, uh, and our enemies are gathering, the financial system is starting to teeter. And Zephaniah says the financial collapse will occur before the Assyrian comes into the land. So, uh, what does October, November, December portend? Uh, we see trouble all around us. How is it going to develop? We shall see in time whether this is the correct analysis of what's going on or not. But so far, it looks like it's shaping up pretty well that way, and these midterm elections could be a turn in some direction uh, that is very powerful one way or another. So here we are in this time when this is happening. Now, chapter 8 goes in, it shows the Assyrian coming at the end of uh, chapter 7, who will be the ones who destroy Ephraim. Then in chapter 8, uh, Isaiah is also told to have a child. So his wife conceived and called his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which in Hebrew means uh, spoil soon the prey, or make haste to the prey. So uh, his birth indicated that from that birth forward, the destruction would come very quickly. And before he could say daddy and mommy in verse 4, uh, the spoil of Samaria, which was the ten, ten northern tribes, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So, an invasion of our country by the Assyrian, leading other nations against us, uh, will occur. Uh, and that's what these signs are about. And as, said, as I've said before, what good is a sign if you can't read it? If I go to China and rent a car and start down the highway, and I see all these funny little characters on the signs, I'm lost. I could even get on GPS, and if it reads it out in Chinese, I'm still lost. Those signs don't do me a bit of good. Now, if I get on the freeway here, and I read a sign, it tells me where I am and where I'm going. 
A sign is meant to impart knowledge. So God giving these signs, if we can't read them, don't do us any good. So when he says it's a sign, he's saying, you don't understand, I'll give you a sign. Oh, well, I don't want one. Okay, I'll give you one anyway. So he meant to impart some knowledge and some understanding there, or he wouldn't have done that. Well, what does it have to do with? It has to do with, as he explains right after that, us losing our kings, the Assyrian coming in and taking us over. Chapter 8, he uses the same thing with Isaiah and his kid, and he says, this is coming very quickly. The king of Assyria will come in all his glory in verse 7. And then in 9, God issues a challenge, and he says, associate yourselves. What is an association? It is a conspiracy. It is an agreement. It is a coalition, all synonyms, of something where peoples come together, and then God says, you will be broken in pieces. And everything that you decide to do in your new world order will come to nothing. Now, that doesn't mean that it won't be there for a while. The Gentiles have 42 months in which to basically rule the earth. But he says, it will come to nothing. Speak the word and it shall not stand, for God is with us. Who is God with? Emmanuel is what we call him when he begins to deliver. And at this point, I think that he began in a small way last Passover. He began to be with us in a way that he hadn't. He increased us as a type of a big increase to come. He helped heal us as a type of incredible healings that are to come. So it was, if you will, a down payment. Like when he gives us the Holy Spirit when we're baptized, it's a down payment for the glory that shall come later. God does things in a small way, and then they become bigger later on. So, he says, you can't stand against God's people, for he is with them. And we already read at the end of chapter 4 that he would be a defense and a cloud and a fire around. And you see the same thing in Zechariah 2, where he says of the two witnesses and those who come to them to build the temple, that he'll be a wall of fire around you. Same, same language. So he's talking about the same period of time here, where he will defend his people and protect them. Verse 11, For the Eternal spoke thus to me with a strong hand, Isaiah, the one who said, Okay, send me, I'll get the message out, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. Say not uh, a conspiracy or confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy, Neither fear you their fear, nor be afraid. There is this thing that's there. There is the conspiracy against. We read about that. Syria and Ephraim conspiring to destroy God's people and our nation, Israel. And all ten tribes, because it says Assyrian, the Assyrian will come against Samaria, which was the capital of the ten, not just of Ephraim and Manasseh, or Judah and, and uh Levi, excuse me. So he tells us to sanctify the Lord of hosts and let him be your fear and let him be your dread, because he will be a sanctuary. 
What is a sanctuary? It's a place where something is protected. A wildlife sanctuary is a place that you protect the wildlife. A human sanctuary is where you protect the humans. So God is going to be a sanctuary. Uh, and he says, bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. So it's his disciples, his followers, that are going to be protected. And I'll wait upon the Eternal that hides his face from the house of Jacob and look for him. Now, hasn't he hidden his face from us, as we've seen in many places? And we're waiting for him and looking for him. And he says, when you turn to me, I will turn to you. And then Isaiah says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwells in Mount Zion. Now, he tells us in Zechariah, he's going to come and dwell with us in Zion. And we'll see in a moment that signs and wonders will be done. So this is the time at the end when the Assyrian is preparing to come. God gives a sign that everything will be okay. Don't worry about what you see around you. Worry about me. He's, the conspiracy will either kill us or he will protect us. So if we wait in faith on him and look for him, he says he will take care of us and be a wall of fire and a defense around us. Now, this is the context that is leading up to chapter 11. Let's not lose that point here. Chapter 9, he says that those who were dwelling in darkness and upon whom the shadow of death was coming, upon them has the light shined into verse 2. And uh, he shows that there will be an increase of the nation, the church, and he will increase the joy according to the joy in harvest, and so on. <coughs> but there will be a confusion and noise in verse 5, but unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and he'll be named all these wonderful names. And he will establish his government. Okay? So Christ is coming to protect during this period of time when our enemies are gathering. It will then attack the nation. The enemies have already gathered and attacked the church and pretty well destroyed it. So now it's, then it begins to talk about the nation itself. Um, verse 13 for the people turn not to him that smites them, neither do they seek the eternal of hosts. Therefore the eternal will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day, a very short period of time, as also outlined in uh, Revelation 18, when all this destruction will come. All right, let's go to 10. Uh, verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger and the staff in their hand is my indignation. God's going to use the Assyrian to punish Israel. And it says of the Assyrian in verse 7, He doesn't mean to do this destruction, neither does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. Now, a lot of people look at Vladimir Putin today and think that he's a fine Christian man. And that perception is growing. And he even says things that seem to indicate that he's an honorable man. Is this speaking 
of someone like him or him that says he doesn't realize it's in his heart to cut off nations, not a few, but he's going to do it. And people, some people will be surprised if he's the one. But uh, I think he's the leader of the Assyrian nation at the moment. And then God is going to do all this thing uh, through the Assyrian. He even says in verse 24 of chapter 10, Therefore thus says the eternal God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, which is where we're going, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite you with a rod and shall lift up his staff against you after the manner of Egypt. In other words, he'll try to beat you into slavery. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and my anger in their destruction. So the Assyrians coming in, uh, Jeremiah 50 indicates that those who escape will come out just ahead of the invading army and flee to Zion, because they'll see the army coming and they'll say, how do I get to Zion? Something has wakened them up that they need to do that. And they'll get here just in time. We have just-in-time delivery in our nation now, and it'll quit delivering just in time, and we'll fall into terrible times. But people will arrive just in time ahead of the Assyrian. And then they'll be protected from that encroaching slavery that is coming. And then we come to chapter 11. Now see, this is just prior to the destruction of our country, which is imminent now. And God changes the subject. Now, why is chapter 11 back here in this context? We can go to Isaiah 65, which is a companion scripture of this, which is clearly speaking of the millennial rule of Christ. It gives more detail there. This is back in the context of the destruction. If you go on past uh, that good part that we used to always read in Worldwide, you'll come down to... Uh, there's still war. Verse 14, they'll fly up on the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west and spoil them of the east together, lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Eternal shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dryshod, and there'll be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Mitzrayim. So there's a story of destruction and punishment on both sides, and even in the end of chapter 11. In other words, it's not speaking of the millennium per se, because it's still in tumultuous times. All right, let's explain that. Chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Eternal shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Eternal. Now, this is speaking, of course, a rod out of the stem of Jesse is Christ. 
I think that's very apparent, and it couldn't be referring really to anybody else. Uh, but notice, there'll come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, what does that mean? Christ appears on the scene, and he says he will dwell with his people in Zion, there in Zechariah 2. And here it talks about a branch growing out of his roots. Let's see if we can understand that. Go back to the book of Zechariah. Now, we've already read uh, in Isaiah how seven women will take, care, take hold of one man and look to him. All right, here in Zechariah <coughs> 2... Um, he said, as we saw in chapter 6 of Isaiah, in verse 5 of chapter 2, I, says the Eternal, will be a wall of fire round about her and will be the glory in the midst of her. And he tells people to flee from the land of the north, speaking of Babylon. Uh, he says, verse 7, Deliver yourself, O Zion, are you dweller of Zion, uh, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So here we are living in this Babylonian country around us, and he says, escape from her. And then he says, she is a daughter of Zion in verse 10, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. We read in 11 that a rod out of the stem of Jesse will come, and that he will rule. So here he is a protection, and he also will come and be with her, I'll dwell with in the midst of you. And this is at the beginning. Verse 13, it says, Be silent, O all flesh, before the Eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. He's getting up and ready to go to work with his mighty and mysterious work. Then he introduces leadership of the church with Joshua the high priest in chapter 3, and then with Zerubbabel, who will be the leader of the two, in chapter 4. But in chapter 3, it goes down and says that uh, Satan was standing against God's people and their leader, and that we were clothed uh, with filthy garments, and they were to be taken away, were to put on the garments of righteousness, Isaiah 52, just before Christ appears in chapter 53, and then 54 when he begins to bless and increase, it all fits together. But now let's tie a couple things together here. Uh, there is forgiveness, clean clothes put on, which is what we're to be doing now. Then in verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you. So it's a congregation, uh, a group of people, for they are men of wonder, or of sign and wonder, uh, in, uh, in the margin. Didn't we just read back there in Isaiah that there would be signs and wonders? For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. So Christ is speaking here and says he's going to bring forth his servant, the branch. We read in Ezekiel 17, or yeah, 17, where he's describing worldwide church of God and how it would fall and be destroyed. And then God says, I'll 
pluck off a twig, a branch, from a dead tree and make it live. So here he says he's going to take a branch and bring it forth. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Seven women, we just read, will take hold of one man. So God is going to bring forth a branch, who is a type of Christ, Zerubbabel, and there will be signs and wonders done that will cause the eyes of all seven churches to look in one direction. And it will be upon one stone. <clears throat> Who can do signs and wonders? Christ himself. Who is the stone, who is the chief cornerstone of the church? Christ himself, Ephesians 2, 20 or 22. He is the chief cornerstone. So it will be he that does signs and wonders, and that will bring forth the branch. Now it says in Isaiah 52, 7 and 8, that the leadership of the church at that time will come together and see eye to eye when the Eternal turns things around. Not until. That one of his servants is blind and deaf until that occurs, and then when he sees these signs and wonders and miracles, when things turn around, if you will, then he will show up and be revealed. So, somewhere in the very near future, before all this destruction is, com is, is really hit, God is going to begin doing some signs and wonders through Christ, and that will cause the leadership of his church to come together and under Christ. Now, only 10% of the church is going to come, but whatever has happened is going to get the attention of all seven variations of the church of Revelation 2 and 3. Seven women, churches are depicted in, as women in prophecy, take hold of one man. So, Christ will reveal his servant, the branch. Then you go to chapter 4, and it shows that uh, Zerubbabel is that individual, and what he does won't be in verse 6, by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the eternal of hosts. And it says in verse 9, that he laid the foundation of the house, his hands will also finish it. And you'll know that the Eternal of Hosts has sent me to you. So it shows this, the two here giving uh, oil, the knowledge of God and the Spirit of God coming forth from two to all seven candlesticks. The, the candlesticks in the book of Revelation are the churches. So those two will be giving the oil to those who come as a result of the signs and wonders of chapter 3. So God is going to be working with his people. Uh, therefore, you go back to Isaiah 4, and it shows that prior to this conspiracy coming to a head, God is going to cause seven women to take hold of one man. Now go back to Isaiah 11 with that background and read again. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, speaking of Christ, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Isn't that where you would want your leadership to come, would be from 
the root of righteousness, Christ. Same branch. We read the word ensign back here somewhere, and it says at the end of the book of Haggai, last verse or two, that God will make Zerubbabel an ensign to the nations, a flag, a banner of where he is working and what he is doing. Armies have their flag. God is going to have someone out carrying his flag. That's what that's saying. And he's revealed as the branch in several different places. A branch off of Christ. Well, isn't that what the church really is? Didn't Paul use the analogy of the Gentiles being grafted into the root of Israel and becoming as much a part of Israel as anybody else? So that is the tree that everybody who is converted is grafted into. We read yesterday how Christ said, I am the vine, you are the branches. So we're all branches attached to the root of the vine, which is Christ. So all he's saying is, I'm going to have a specific branch off me that I'm going to use to lead. It's actually quite simple, and the analogy is throughout the Bible. Now, the Spirit of the Lord, not the Lord, but the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. Who's Him? The one who is identified as the branch. God is going to give him wisdom and understanding. That's what it says. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding will rest upon him. The Spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the eternal. So this is someone who is going to fear the eternal, who is the branch that comes out of Christ, just as we all are, only this one is to be a leader among the branches, that is us. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the eternal, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. He won't make his decisions based on what he hears, rumor, or things that his eyes might see, because there's always more to it than that. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, you ever read about the plagues in Revelation 11 that are going to come upon the world by this man, the two actually, uh, just like it was in Egypt? And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So it says that if anybody will hurt those two, fire will come out of their mouths and slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness, the girdle of his reins. Faithfulness to God. So Christ himself is coming to dwell with us in Zion, Zechariah 2 we just read. He is going to have a physical leader, a branch off of Christ, and the seven churches will take hold of him once he does the signs and wonders to cause them to look at him, the stone, because they will have to recognize that those signs and wonders have to come from Christ. They can't come from a man. In next chapter, we even read, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Now, we've been studying in this feast the spirit of man, spirit of Satan, and then yesterday, the spirit of God. So, these things cannot be done 
apart from the Spirit of God, but as a positive thing, they will be done because of the Spirit of God. That all these things are going to happen. The world has to have a witness against it. And a great deal of that witness is going to be, I firmly believe at this point from all these scriptures and more, that he is going to create a microcosm of the millennium. He says he will bring his people to Zion. There they will have refuge. He will be a protection around them. And Christ told us to be the light of the world from a hill or from a mountain. And he says the word will go out from his holy mountain, Zion and Jerusalem. But specifically Zion, because Jerusalem once built, and the temple once built, the physical temple, will be taken over by the beast and false prophet, and they will set up their headquarters in that new city of Jerusalem and that new temple. But the spiritual temple will flee ahead of it to Zion. So the word won't go out from Jerusalem then. That'll be the beast and the false prophet speaking from Jerusalem. It will come out of Zion. And that's what all the scriptures say. The word will come out of Zion. Just over the hill here. That's where it'll come from. In the land of Ephraim. In the the wilderness of Babylon. He doesn't tell us to flee to the Middle East. He says, remain in Babylon in Micah 4, but go to the wilderness of Babylon. And it's very easy to totally prove that America is the leader of Babylon today and is the nation designated as the Babylon that will be destroyed there in Revelation 17 and 18. So this is within this nation of Babylon, and we go to the wilderness of Babylon, away from the cities and out from that which will be destroyed and which has the influence of Babylon. God wants his people in Zion, the joy of all the land, with all this, the, the beauty that is there, that Psalms and other places describe. So, what is the message of the two witnesses? It is that you are in rebellion against God, you are following Satan and his beast and false prophet, and you will be destroyed unless you repent. And if you don't repent now, remember Nineveh? Nineveh repented now when they saw this guy coming into this city who had been in a fish's belly and was probably from bile and digestive juices as white as snow. Scary looking guy getting vomited out on the beach. And when he went into Nineveh proclaiming, you'd better repent or God is going to destroy you, the Ninevites said, oh, (laughs) maybe you're right. And they repented. And God said, why couldn't Israel be like Nineveh? So the message has to go out to the world that you're following a false god, Satan, and worshiping the beast and the false prophet. You're worshiping the dragon, as Revelation says. So the message is, that's going to end in ruin. But if you look at these people in Zion, they have all these good things from God and the blessings from God that is going to be worldwide. But if you don't repent now, you're going to be killed and you're going to miss out on it. 
Now, you have to be able to point at something and say, I mean, it can't just be words. You've got to be able to, if it's a true witness, you've got to be able to say, this is the way it'll be. Don't advertisers do that? I mean, do you see a McDonald's ad that says, has no pictures, it just says, come to our place and we'll make you a good hamburger. Well, they're already lying, but nevertheless, they have pictures. And whether whatever they're advertising, be it Burger King, McDonald's, or whatever, they show you a great big picture of something that looks like it would take three people to eat, stacked high with meat and vegetables, and looks pretty good in the picture. And then you order one, and you say, where's the beef? If you remember that commercial. But they show you something. That's my point. They don't just tell you about it. They show you something so that you can truly, not just envision, envisage, but see what will be. Now, you and I today read the Bible, and we don't see what can be, except in our imagination as we read these scriptures. But God is going to give them more than that. And he's going to say, look at those people there, and you can have what they have, if you repent today. If you do not repent today, your water will turn to blood, and you will have hail and flies on this city. And we'll go to another one tomorrow and tell them the same thing. Now, what is the picture that God is going to give? His branch, that he gives the knowledge and wisdom to, as a human counterpart or type of Christ. You see, it can only be a type because Christ himself is going to reign a thousand years in peace and prosperity with a rod of iron and with kindness and gentleness at the same time. So what he is giving ahead of time to the world is a type of what he will be later, a branch off of him that's given the qualities needed to rule as Christ would rule, by his spirit, not by power or not by might of man. And I do believe in this context of trouble and tribulation and difficulty that is coming, Isaiah 11 fits, premillennial. Let's read it. So I'm going to give this leader this branch that I'm going to reveal, as we see in, Hag- in Haggai or Zechariah 3, all these good qualities. And then he says in verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid. Now a leopard still lies down with the kid today, but he lies down to eat it. <laughs> That's what's happening today. And when the wolf dwells with the lamb, he is thinking dinner. It won't be that way. They'll lie down together, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. They're going to be totally tame. I've got a couple of little goats out here in the front pen that are like that. They were raised on a bottle and they're just so sweet and tame, and they'll come and they'll get in your lap, 
uh, they'll nudge you if you quit petting them, because they utterly love human beings, and they think they are one, having been raised on a bottle. A little child will lead them. Now, he can lead, they can lead a tamed lamb or a tamed kid of the goats now. But if you don't handle them a lot, uh, they can't get that close to them. I mean, a lot of my goats I can't really pet. They'll follow me around thinking I have corn, and I can get within that far of them, but if I read out to touch them, they move away. No, what he's saying here is the nature is going to change. The spirit and the animals, remember it says the spirit of the animal goes down into the dust there in Ecclesiastes. They aren't resurrected. The spirit of man, when he dies, goes back to the Father who gave it, but the spirit of the animal just goes into the dust. But the spirit and attitude will change. Now, remember the Garden of Eden. Everything was peaceful. So we've already had a microcosm of the millennium, right? He created Adam and Eve. They could wander among the animals. The temperature was perfect. Uh, they didn't even need clothes. They had everything good to eat. It grew naturally. There were not thorns and thistles and briars and all those things that came shortly thereafter because God says that from now on you will have briars and thistles and work by the sweat of your brow to produce anything. So prior to that, they didn't need to. So what has God shown us in the past? He's shown us a microcosm of the millennium in the Garden of Eden. He's done it once. And man, through the spirit of Satan, repudiated that, threw it all away, and would not obey God. And for the most part, hasn't ever since. And we've had nothing but trouble and war and violence and hate on the earth, for the most part. And we're getting back now to not World War I or II, but World War III, which is going to be far worse. And into the destruction of well over 90% of the population of the earth from 7 billion down to 100 million, as Daniel says. But, he's going to have a faithful 10% of those whom he has called in this end time who will be taken to Zion and they will live under these conditions. He talks about this right in the context of all this horror and destruction that is occurring, and that he will come and dwell with us, he says, Emmanuel, his name, God with us, not just God is salvation, which Jesus or Joshua means. A very close personal relationship there with you, dwelling with you, he says in Zechariah 2. And he will have a righteous leader to lead, and he will change the nature of the animals. I have trouble controlling myself day in and day out. We have a lot of people coming in and out of here, and they have goat heads in their shoes. And I pad around my house now barefooted, and every little bit I yell. <laughs> because they're all over the place. I vacuumed some yesterday, but I didn't get them all. They won't exist anymore in Zion. The rattlesnakes that are there today will not bite anybody. Let's read on. Uh, 
The cow and the bear shall feed together. The bears won't eat meat anymore. They'll eat grass. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Probably going to have to change his teeth. Have you ever seen your cat or your dog trying to eat grass in the backyard? It's a, it's a tough assignment. But they'll be eating grass to make a living. And the sucking child, we've got one back here that's just, just starting to crawl, still nursing. The sucking child shall play on the hole of the snake, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the snake's den. Snakes will be changed. They won't be pit vipers. They won't be poisonous. They'll be changed. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters over the sea. Now, it is going to start in a small way, and there'll be a root of Jesse who will stand for an ensign of, of the people. Read that again in the last verse of uh, Haggai, that he's going to appoint Zerubbabel as an ensign for Christ. So this is all happening, uh, and to it shall the Gentiles seek. Now, to some degree, there will probably be a few who will say, hey, I like this idea, and may respond favorably like Nineveh did. And his rest shall be glorious. Now, this culminates, and I think right here it's looking forward to the time when Christ himself begins his millennial rule. So what he does as a microcosm will last for three and a half years, and then almost immediately turn into Christ himself ruling in the millennium. But he's got to give a, an undeniable witness to the world of what Christ is going to do. So he will set it up ahead of time in this context. Now, I'm running out of time. I meant to get to Isaiah 65, but we need some background to understand that what we read here and have for the past decades is not referring just to the millennium. This is a forerunner of it, still set in the context of war and trouble and an ensign going out to the nations. Notice verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall set his end again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and Egypt and all the places they're taken captive, and set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, and the animosity between Ephraim and Judah and so on will stop. Now, interesting, he says he'll set his hand the second time. Doesn't that fit what I've been telling you now for years? That the first time, it's with the church. And this microcosm of the millennium will occur in Mount Zion as a witness to the world of what Christ is about to do, and they will have to make a choice. Follow the beast or follow Christ. If not, you die. And then comes the destruction. They die. <laughs> and after that, he, not, he doesn't gather 10% of the church. He gathers 10% of physical Israel to begin the millennium.
he sets his hand the second time after having gathered the church at first. So he says it, I think, fairly clearly here. I'll gather the church, I'll bless them, I'll dwell with them, I'll send a righteous branch to lead them, and they will witness against the world, and then the world will not listen, so I will destroy the world, and then I will gather a second time. I think there's something you can take and utilize to get as close to God as you can to be sure you're one of those who takes hold of the branch that God produces. He mentioned, I think he mentions the branch there at the end, on down in chapter 6. Says t- doesn't he? Let me run back there just a moment. Uh, he mentions seven women will take care, hold of one man. Well, maybe it's four I'm looking for. Uh, yeah, seven women will take hold of one man. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And they'll come to Zion and still live there, and he will purge their blood and create a beautiful thing, and it will be a place of refuge. Now, you need a place of refuge there when that branch is there ruling the church because the world is still in chaos. Now, if that were referring only to the millennium, why do you need a refuge? Because all armies will have been destroyed. They're Satan bound. Nothing to take refuge from. He needs to be a wall of fire and a defense because there's still danger. But when he gathers Israel the second time in the millennium, physical Israel, there will be nothing to worry about. Won't need a refuge for a thousand years. So, nobody will believe this except a very few. Nobody will believe it. But it's going to happen. And it has to happen just ahead of the absolute destruction of Ephraim, which is on its way. And then the rest of the nations of Israel will be destroyed as well, because he says not only uh, Ephraim, but this prophecy back here is specifically against Ephraim, that it will be destroyed. And we see that Babylon will be destroyed by the beast and false prophet, and we can identify America and Ephraim as ruled over by Babylon, where Israelites and Babylon government and nation. But other scriptures indicate that the rest of Israel is going to be taken into captivity too. But as the leader of Israel, who's the head of NATO? We are. As the leader, they hate us and will destroy us first. They all know by now, if you start a war in Europe or in Asia or wherever you start it, that America is going to come loafing in on its horses and jets and you don't have a chance. World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, Iraq, Libya, you name it. If you don't get rid of America, you don't have a chance. Oh, they've all waked up to that fact. This time, guess who gets attacked first? 
they are smart enough to realize you've got to cut off the head of the snake if you're going to kill the snake. You can chop on the tail and you can chop up from the tail, but eventually you've got to chop off the head or you're going to get bit. So this time, they're going to be smarter. And we have set ourselves up as the bully of the world and created enemies around the world, so they're not going to have any trouble deciding we better kill them first. That's what these scriptures all say. It's a prophecy against Ephraim. And from the time that prophecy started being counted, it'll happen within 65 years. Now, my present feeling is that that began in 1954 and would end in just before June of 2019. And everything that's going on around the world right now and what is happening in this nation and just south of it, uh, Canada just proclaimed that they want Sharia law in Canada. Trudeau said that. That's Manasseh and Reuben and maybe other elements of some of the tribes of Israel. And they want Islamic law established in Canada. Their own leader said that. We're surrounded. And all they got, boy, we've got border patrol all along between here and Mexico, but the border to Canada is almost open. There's a few check stations where you show your passport before you go into Canada. But there's nothing there to stop you. There's lots of little roads that go into Canada off out of farmland that there's no check post at all. You can get into Canada easily by using some of those border crossings. We're in trouble. And it's coming. But for you, you have a chance to be in a premillennial setting in Zion with protection from God and all the blessings that he proclaims there in Isaiah 11. He showed it once in the garden. He's going to show it again to the world. And then he's going to bring the destruction. And then Christ will come and he himself will rule for a thousand years. So what I'm telling you today is there's a premillennium coming and you can be part of it. And you can be part of the light and the example to the world of the blessings that can come from Almighty God if you will but just obey him and follow him. It's very encouraging to read these things and know that God is with us. And we can then, with full confidence, call him Emmanuel, God with us, dwelling with us in Zion. It says, you call him Jesus, but they will call him Emmanuel. Because he is coming to dwell very soon. And I think he was born to us a little bit at Passover, and that that presence is going to grow until it becomes a very, very obvious thing when he does the signs and wonders that will cause the seven churches to look at the stone who does those signs and wonders. And his leader, the branch, will be revealed. And then thing goes, things go forward from there. So we have a lot of terrible things and a lot of wonderful things just ahead of us. And I don't want part of the terrible things. I want the wonderful things. So that should give us impetus then to seek God so that we can be part of his example to the world of what happens to those who obey God and serve him.